I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In this episode of The Bell Tale, Freddy Scappaticci. Standard procedure is to strip and debug it just to see if they're wired up or whatever it is. The IRA gave him the job of hunting down informers and executing them. There is a connection between the agent known as Steak Knife and at least 18 murders. But Scapatici turned out to have been Britain's top agent in Northern Ireland, Steak Knife. He seemed to be someone who genuinely enjoyed inflicting pain and violence in someone and therefore was completely suited to the role that he was carrying out. What did he do? How did he get away with it? And where is he now? I'm joined by the Belfast Telegraph security correspondent, Alison Morris. Alison, thanks very much for coming in. The obvious place to start is, who is Freddy Scapatici? Freddy Scapatici was the son of Italian immigrants. He lived in the market area of South Belfast. Um, he was considered a bit of a hard man. He was also a very accomplished football player. At one stage, he had trials with a, a few teams in England and was signed to Nottingham Forest. But the, the story goes that he was a bit of a homebody and couldn't survive uh, away from Belfast and, and wasn't long returning. At the age of 25, when internment was introduced, he was interned. So the, the story goes that when he was interned, he was interned with some very senior IRA men. And by the time he emerged from internment a few years later, he was a member of the IRA. That would have been quite common at the time. So, you know, internment, for anyone who doesn't know, meant there was special powers that people could be arrested and detained without trial. Um, a lot of it was based on very old intelligence. So people who had maybe been involved in republicanism way back in the 50s were arrested and very young people who were just from republican communities were arrested. Um, and by the end of that, I think, you know, it sort of bolstered the provisional IRA. It seems that that's what happened with Freddie Scapatiche. What happened after that, I think, is where things get slightly more murky. So when he was released after a period of internment as an IRA man, he went into the IRA and became, I suppose, what we call a very successful, a very ruthless IRA man. By 1980, he had been appointed to what the IRA called their internal security unit, or as it's better ways known, otherwise known as is the Nutton Squad. So that would have been the section of the IRA who, if, say, an operation failed and there was a suspicion that it was because it had been compromised to an informer, they launched an internal investigation. Freddie Scapatici would have been the man in charge of that investigation. Culling agents was, of course, one of the squad's key tasks. So 
Scabadici's British Army handlers can have been in absolutely no doubt that he was involved in the murder of his fellow agents time and time again. That mean he wielded a massive power because it wouldn't matter what your position was within the IRA. If Freddie Scapatishi called you in to be interviewed or interrogated, you had to go along and had to abide by his orders. So he became a very powerful um, and important member of the IRA after that. When he was recruited as an informer is less clear. There are reports that he volunteered to be an informer sometime around 1978 after being assaulted in an argument with another IRA man, a man who came from the market as well, um, and there was no action taken against his opponent and he became increasingly bitter about this. There is another suggestion that he had been involved in an attack on a, an off-duty RUC man and he had compromised himself in terms of, of evidence at the scene and therefore he had been pulled in and recruited as an informer. It seems fairly clear that he started off working as a special branch informer, but when it became obvious to the intelligence agencies just what they had on their hands, you know, this person, really, if you're in charge of internal security, you know everything, you know, you know every operation from every unit of the IRA. The only part that he wouldn't have had any power knowledge over would have been the South Armagh IRA, who were naturally distrustful of the Belfast leadership and wouldn't have been passing information as such up the road, as they called it. But in terms of that, he would have known almost everything. So who did he answer to? or who? Do, uh... he, would have, he would have answered to the Chief of Staff of the IRA. He would have answered to the Army Council. But at the same time too, they would have taken reports from him. He would have been the person who was trusted to go in and carry out these investigations and interrogations. And that might have sometimes meant that he had to investigate people who were of a much higher rank than him. So you can see how once he was positioned within the Nutton Squad as an informer, he became someone who was praised in terms of the intelligence agencies. And that was when he moved then from special branch to British intelligence. So they had what we call sort of shadowy force, force research unit, which was a you know an element of the, the British Army that has been linked to all sorts of, of different collusive sort of acts over the years. But it seems sometime around then... He was then recruited into them and then became an MI5 agent and a member of, so started working for British intelligence. And at that stage, he would have been taken off special branch and they wouldn't have been aware um, as such as, as to what his movements. So we've used two terms there, Alison, informer and agent. And the way you phrased it, it means it almost seems like a graduation to a new role. Is there a fundamental difference? It's a promotion in terms of intelligence. And the, the fact is that the people who he would have been investigating um, within the IRA, the majority of them would have been special branch informers. Some of them would be quite low-level informers, people that became known as what we had to call 10-pound touts, you know, people who would have been passing on minimal information. They wouldn't have really had very in-depth information, but maybe they lived in a Republican area and there was Republicans lived in their street or there was people related to them who were in the IRA and they were passing on information. Um, and people then of a sort of middle and, you know, who played a middle and role in, in the IRA, he'd have been investigating them, but they'd have been special branch informers. He was much higher, higher up than that. He was described by the, the sort of whistleblower Martin Ingram as being the jewel in the crown of British intelligence. You know, there are rumours that he was taken to checkers to meet Margaret Thatcher, you know, that he was of such importance. And at that point in time, it meant protect Scapatishi at all costs. 
So other informers would have been sacrificed to protect him. So maybe the IRA would have been suspicious as to who may or may not have been an informer and information may have been passed on and other people were killed as a result. And ironically, the man who was interrogating them was the man who was actually a much higher level informer than they were. Officially, the Northern Ireland conflict was not a war. In truth, it was sometimes waged by the intelligence services as if it was. This is the story of how far the intelligence services compromised their peacetime values in an effort to beat the IRA, a story that some have been determined should never see the light of day. We've used two words there, investigate, interrogate. I mean, what's the reality behind those words? We know that in, in 1983, Scabatachi approached ITV's The Cook Report. A lot of people listening to this will be too young to remember The Cook Report. It was a sort of investigative undercover programme um, and he wanted to hand over information specifically about Martin McGuinness who he appeared to have a, a grudge against. And that took place in a car park of the, the Clodden Hotel in, in County Down in 1993. Those, those tapes remained secret for, for quite some time. Yeah. And everybody being what they are, everybody's a breaking point. You know? And they think they're going to go home, but they don't. But then in 2003, tabloid newspaper reported that Freddie Scapatichi was the informer known as Steakknife, who was at the highest level of the IRA. I was working in a local newspaper at the time, but it was, you cannot emphasise how big this story was at the time. It was huge. Um, everyone was trying to track him down. The press were, you know, parked outside his house in Riverdale. He had gone to ground, and then the next thing he appears again for two very specific interviews. But what I think is the really interesting thing about this time is that Sinn Féin and the IRA were denying this was the case. They were saying, this is British dirty tricks. This is, you know, a tabloid newspaper that's been discredited. None of this is true. Freddie Scapatichi is produced... First of all, for a press conference in a solicitor's office. My statement basically is that I am Freddie Scapatici. I'm sitting here today with my solicitor. I'm telling you I'm not guilty of any of these allegations. And second of all, does an interview with the Anderson News in which he denies that he has ever been an informer. And within a week or two, he's gone. He disappears from his house. He has never been seen in Belfast again since. He moves into witness protection and within a couple of weeks or months it becomes quite clear that the reports were actually true. At that point in time, senior Republicans and figures tried to sort of push the story off the agenda and for a while it did disappear off the news agenda. At this point in time in, in briefings with journalists, they had accepted that Freddie Scapatichi was an informer, but they were still sort of playing down the significance of his role, saying that he had left the RA in much earlier than what the, those papers were were reporting. And he, he went somewhere or was taken somewhere? He, he was taken into witness protection and he received an injunction, a high court injunction, that said that journalists could not say where he was. Interestingly enough, and this is just like a total side story, he was tracked down by journalists from the, you know, the now defunct news of the world 
who tapped his phone as part of the and part of the phone hacking scandal. Freddie Scapatichi got a payout from the News of the World because they tapped his phone. This man's a serial killer, and the News of the World had to pay him out. They found him. They were about to publish details of his whereabouts, pictures of him. Here is, you know, the informer Freddie Scapatichi. Because remember, he'd gone to Italy and all sorts of places. He couldn't speak a word of Italian. You know, he was the son of Italian immigrants, but he had no real connection to Italy apart from his father. But when you asked about, you know, the informer, the the interrogation or the interviews. A lot of that stayed very, very silent. And the reason for that was, despite the fact that this man had been responsible for the deaths of so many people who were alleged to be informers, the majority of those people who he killed were from very Republican communities. And the stigma of being labelled an informer to their families was a terrible thing to have to live with. And they just didn't want to speak. And if they didn't speak, well, then what happens from then on? What happens to the story? And I would say it just takes one brave person to step up and put put their, their head above the parapet. And that, that brave person was Frank Mulhern. So in 2015, Frank Mulhern contacted me. His son, Joe Mulhern, was just 23 when he was abducted. He was a, a, an IRA volunteer. He was abducted and taken away. He was missing for two weeks before his body was found near the, the county Tyrone border at Castle Durr. This was in 1993. He had been interrogated and accused of, of passing information to Special Branch before being shot dead. Frank had came to see me for a couple of weeks before he decided that he wanted to go public and he said he had been to like a lot of victims organisations and other things asking for help but nobody wanted to help, he had hit a brick wall. You know, Frank told me his story, he told me about Joe and what he had said was if this man was such a high level informer surely his handlers had to know everything that he was doing therefore they knew where my son was being held for those two weeks that he was abducted why couldn't they went in and rescued him? Why was he allowed to die? Why was he sacrificed? Once Frank spoke... It opened the floodgates and lots of other people started coming forward as well. And then there was a there was a reinvestigation of that. And as part of that story, I spoke then to numerous victims, some who decided to go public, some who still did not feel able to go public. And that was when the real horror stories of the sort of brutality of the kind of person that steak knife Freddie Scapatishi was. He was he was a small man in stature, but he was a very, very cruel person. And and these interrogations took the form of the person was abducted. Well, you see, uh, things that I would be given you would be people's lives be taken, you see. They were taken away to a very remote location. They were held there for some time. He would then come along. He would interrogate them. They would be tortured. And then what he would do is say, if you just admit what you've done, I'll let you go home. You know, you tell me what happened, you tell me what information you passed on, and I'll release you. And so these people then confessed, and he recorded their confessions in the majority of these cases. Um, And then the confessions were then taken to their families, and they were played to them. And, you know, one of the people I spoke to said he seemed to enjoy playing the recording to the family. And this was them listening to the last words of their loved one, who was not only murdered and they had to come to terms with that but they had to come to terms with the fact that they'd been murdered with the stigma of being an informer and these people were buried sometimes in tiny little funerals and only 20 or 30 people showed up because people didn't want to be associated because they were afraid of being labelled if they showed up to an informer's funeral How did most IRA volunteers think of him? They were afraid of him <laughs> Absolutely Because? His interrogation tactics Hang you upside down. Not allowed to sleep. But he always seemed to get the job done. 
Frank Mulhern wouldn't give up. He tortured the authorities. He launched civil cases. He just refused. He says he was standing in Lanadoon in West Belfast and Freddie Scapatici pulled up alongside him in a car. Now, bear in mind, he had no reason to just get out and speak, but Frank would have known Freddie Scapatici. He says he asked him how things were and that if he got any hassle to give him a shout. He said he asked him outright, how did my son die? And he told Joe, he told Frank Mulhern that where he was when he was being held, he said he was naked, he was wearing a cross and chain. Um, he ordered the crown holding him to let him get washed and get something to wear. And he said they first shot him in the neck, but that didn't kill him. So he ordered another guy to shoot him again and he hit him again and shot him in the head. Um, Frank says that's how his son died. That's what the autopsy report showed and he didn't know how anyone else would have known that. The interesting thing is that, you know, Joe Mulharm was murdered in 1993. The IRA maintain that Freddie Scapatici had nothing to do with him since 1990. In fact, Danny Morrison, who was the, the former, you know, head of communications for Sinn Féin, he said he was stood down over the Sandy Lynch affair. The Sandy Lynch affair, was Sandy Lynch was also an informer. He was being held in a house in West Belfast. He was to be interrogated by Scapatici. I heard a voice who I believed to be Scapatici. And then he said, do you know who I am, Sandy? And I said, yes. He said, I don't give two fucks because where you're going, you'll not be telling no one. He said, if he had his way, I would get a jab up the arse and waking up in God's country, hung upside down in a cow shed, that he'd skin me alive and that no one would hear me squealing. Danny Morrison says he was asked to come along to this house, that he was supposed to go along to this house and read out a statement. But when he arrived, the police, the army, everyone arrived. Stick knife was long gone at this stage. Danny Morrison and um, the other people who were present in the house took a civil case and because they said they were wrongfully arrested, that they were entrapped by Scapatishi, that it was, you know, an agent provocateur who had lured them to the house. And interestingly, when that case came to the High Court, it wasn't fought because to, to fight that case, they would have to give information about who, what informers were present. So instead, they just settled it and just paid them all out. So Danny claims 1990, Frank Mulhern saying... Scabatishi told me details of how my son died in 1993. So there's a discrepancy in how long he was actually still in this role before he was um, unmasked. I suppose from the IRA's point of view, this question is relevant and wouldn't be relevant for other people perhaps, but did Freddie Scabatichi as an agent have IRA men executed who weren't informers? I think the majority of them may have been low-level informers, but I mean, a lot of their families would argue that there was no evidence to show that they'd ever been informers at all. And some of them may have been killed to cover up for, for Freddie Skeptici himself, because obviously suspicions would start to arise. There was certain high-level RA operations that were compromised and people were arrested and therefore that raises questions. That would have came to a head after the Sandy Lynch affair because you can't get much more high profile of an arrest than Danny Morrison at that particular time. So that would have drawn all that um, to the forefront. The question is, who then investigated that? Who was investigating Freddie Scabatishi? Because if he was gone by then, and the IRA say that he was gone by 1990, the murders that happened after that had almost identical characteristics to them to the murders Freddie Scabatishi carried out. So either he had an apprentice who he had trained to mirror his behaviour or he was still involved in those killings at that time. There are families 
that believe that their loved ones' deaths could have been prevented. There could have been state intervention. Now, again, that's not straightforward. We need to look at the circumstances of what may or may not have been known by those state actors, those state forces, when, and what opportunities they may or may not have had to do anything. John Boucher, who is a, a former English chief constable, now put this in a timeline. Frank Mulhern spoke to me in 2015. In 2016, Barr McGrory, who was the then director of public prosecutions, called myself and a number of other journalists into his private rooms round in the, the PPS to say that he had been handed a report, that he was disturbed by what was in it, and that he was to ask the chief constable to launch an investigation into the informer known as Steak Knife. At that stage, he was being linked up to 18 murders. That investigation, the chief constable at the time, George Hamilton, said he could not undertake because obviously the implications were that members of that organisation, albeit the RUC, were involved and he then took the hired the, the assistance of an outside force and John Boucher was appointed to Operation Canova in 2016. And he has retained, in, in fairness to John Boucher, he has retained the confidence of the families, which is something very rare in these, these investigations in Northern Ireland. They seem to really trust him. They seem to really think that he will investigate these and he has investigated these and there are currently files with the PPS. But to date, the only person who has been prosecuted for anything was in 2018, a much older, Freddie Scabatishi, now in his 70s, appeared at Westminster Crown Court in England to be charged with having pornographic images. Some of those images, they said, were including pornographic images that involved animals. I mean, I was quite shocked, but then I remember speaking to people who knew him and people who were involved um, with him in the IRA and they said that they weren't surprised that he had been quite a depraved character, quite a cruel character and and also quite cruel in his own home, you know, in terms of, of the violence. He seemed to be someone who genuinely enjoyed inflicting pain and violence in someone and therefore was completely suited to the role that he was carrying out. I gather he told his British Army handlers that he disliked gratuitous violence. Still, that doesn't seem to have stopped him from preparing his fellow agents for death, and sometimes pretty barbaric deaths at that. When we say he was an agent, I mean, we've been talking about his role in the IRA, but when we say... He was an agent. I mean, what did he do? Did he pass on information? Was he an agent of influence or did he, what did he do? He passed on inf uh, information and also he would have been very close to the leadership. So he would have known also direction, policy. You know, if there was discussions about entering into negotiations, talks, ceasefires, he would have been privy to that kind of information. But also there was a couple of, you know, very big operations that were compromised at that time and very senior figures went to prison. If you think about the the sort of the, the maze prison, the H-blocks at that time, they were full, you know, they were full of, of IRA members. You know, the IRA knew that they had been compromised somewhere along the lines because so many operations were being foiled and not getting through. Obviously, we know that there were some very big IRA bombing operations as well that went ahead but they're saying, I mean, you think about those sort of big bombings in London, a lot of that happened in the mid-90s when the IRA sense Capitishi was gone by that stage. You know, he was he was certainly handing over information. This is the thing that, you know, as a security journalist, sometimes it keeps me awake at night. And if you thought about it too deeply, I, I don't think you'd get much sleep. When these informers were being hired and being used, in my mind, all, every law enforcement agency in the world uses human intelligence. Every law enforcement agency in the world uses informers. 
I assume the role of an informer is to save life and to protect life. But who was making the decision that they would protect the lives of some people? But in other cases, the protection of the source was more important. So was Freddy Scapatishi was protecting him and protecting his life and protecting his role as an informer, ensuring that he wasn't exposed, was that more important than the life of Frank Mulhern's son? Who made that decision? If the legacy mechanisms that are proposed, and I know that, you know, at this point in time, people are still fighting to stop those legacy mechanisms being introduced because of land prosecutions. But if they do say that there's going to be a truth recovery process, well, is that truth recovery process going to, going to tell the entire truth? And is it going to tell the truth to the people who lost their lives, the 18 plus people who are believed to have been murdered or other murdered with the knowledge of a man who was working at the highest level possible within British intelligence, a man we are told had tea with Margaret Thatcher. Is that that truth going to be told? Alison Marsh, security correspondent with the Belfast Telegraph. Thank you very much. This episode of The Bell Tale was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar. The sound design was by Gavin Hennessy. The clips came from UTV, RTE, the BBC, Sky, Channel 4 and The Cook Report. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,